This is your favorite podcaster, Romina, and you just tuned in to RM Podcast FL. Hello, my beautiful people, and welcome back to RM Podcast FL. I want to thank you so, so much for investing your time to our podcast, and I'm super duper excited about today's episode, you guys. So number one, it's May 12th, and later on today at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, we do have a webinar which is going to be based on how to build long-lasting relationships, so definitely go ahead and look up the details at rmpodcastfl.com. And we have a lot more cool projects coming your way. So make sure to check the website and make sure to stay updated with any news. But without losing any time, let's dive into today's episode. Today, we have Gary Nasner, you guys. This episode is amazing. And I will tell you this, I have not been this nervous interviewing somebody in a very, very long time. And I was super nervous about this interview, but I think it was just emotions because I was super excited at the same time. But Gary Nasner was on the FBI world for over three decades, 23 of them serving as a hostage negotiator. He aided in prison riots, airplane hijackings, and over 120 overseas kidnapping of Americans. Following his retirement from the FBI, he became a senior vice president with Control Risks, an international risk consultancy assisting clients in managing overseas kidnapping incidents. He continues to consult independently and speak at law enforcement conferences and corporate gatherings around the world. Gary's book, Stalling for Time, My Life as an FBI Hostage Negotiator, served as half-face of the top 10 Netflix series Waco, the 51-day standoff with Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas. During this conversation, we talk about skills that hostage negotiators use during high-intense moments to control their own emotions, skills that they use to stay focused, skills that they use to strive on resolving the solution with the best possible outcome, listening skills, skills on how to use strip psychology, and a lot more. So without losing any time, I'm going to let you guys listen to the interview. Go ahead and click on the details if you want to connect with Gary. I know he has a webinar coming out soon. Definitely highly suggest for you to register. I've attended two of his webinars so far. It's amazing. It's a lot of knowledge, a lot of golden nuggets. So enjoy, you guys. Okay, perfect. So just like I mentioned on the bio, you guys, today's episode is with Gary Nessner, and I'm super excited about this episode. How are you today, Gary? I'm doing great. How are you? I am good. Thank you so much for asking. Um, I would say hi from your hometown, because I am in Jacksonville, which is very close to where are you from? <laughs> yes, indeed. I was raised in uh, Atlantic Beach, uh, just east of you, and it was a great place to be to grow up and to be raised and went to Atlantic Beach Elementary School and Fletcher High School and I have friends and fond memories even today. Absolutely. Jacksonville is a really nice city, I have to say. I think I'll stick around here for quite some time. <laughs> so you. Um, you guys probably heard of Gary Nestor by now. If you have not heard, then you probably just need to jump on Netflix and see the series Waco because it is based on uh, Gary's book, which is Styling for Time, My Life as an FBI Hostage Negotiator. So 
Gary, let's start with how did you even get to be a hostage negotiator? Because you mentioned on the book too that you always loved working for the FBI. You had this passion, but how did you get there? Yeah, I mean, I wanted to be an FBI agent from a pretty young age, about eight years old, um, you know, when I saw a TV show about it. And, you know, so it sort of became my ambition and my uh, my dream. And that eventually happened for me after college, and I joined the FBI. And when I was uh, first getting my training as a new agent, you don't join the FBI as a negotiator. You join as a, you know, a regular special agent investigator. But in that training, they gave an orientation about some of the new and interesting uh, things that the FBI was working on. And one of those was hostage negotiation, which was at that time a very new discipline that had really begun in New York City. And um, there was something about it that I found very appealing to my personality and the thought of uh, being able to diffuse tense situations using communication skills had a lot of appeal to me. So. I made a note to myself that when I had uh, sufficient time in and could get a position in the training school for that, then then I would do so. So I did in 1980. I um, I got my first training as a negotiator, and uh, again the discipline was only a few years old at that time, and I did that part time along with my investigative duties. At the time, I was in the Washington field office of the FBI, and I was working. Um, terrorism investigations. So when I wasn't engaged in that work, I would also provide training to police officers in negotiations and respond to incidents that occurred. So I got some interesting experiences doing that, and I guess I came to the attention um, uh, of the folks at uh, the FBI Academy, and they asked me to come to 1990 and to become a full-time negotiator. At that time, there was only three of us, um, and we managed uh, 350 FBI part-time negotiators in the field. So, and then, uh, you know, after Waco in 93, I became uh, the, the chief negotiator when a, a standalone elevated unit was created. So that's kind of the evolution for me. It's uh, one of, uh, of having a lot of interesting challenges and, and hopefully having uh, succeeded more than not. So you you say on the book you also mention listening is is very is the cheapest skill that you can have but it's the most precious thing you can also do at the same time. Would well, you... I say it's it's the cheapest concession you can make. It's not a cheap skill, but it's a cheap concession. I mean, when you somebody's angry or wants something for, from you or needs something from you, the mere act of listening to what they have to say doesn't in any way weaken your position or uh, bring it to a point where you have to make a concession or give in. So, you know, we try to tell people instead of getting angry and adversarial, just be a very thoughtful and patient listener and, and, and fully understand what they have to say. You know, the, the business guru, Stephen Covey has a very nice quote. Nice quote. He says, uh, first seek to understand and then seek to be understood. So before I can begin to try to tackle someone's problems, issues, concerns, it's really incumbent upon me to really try to better understand what happened to them, how they feel about it, and what is it they're looking to accomplish. But how do you manage that when you're in a very high stressful crisis negotiation moment, such as a hostage moment? How do you still... Well, you do that your... essentially by, yeah, you do that essentially by staying calm. The, the very first thing um, in, in any class that I teach to police officers in 
hostage negotiations, crisis negotiations, is self-control. And, and the issue being, if, if you can't control your own emotions, how can you begin to expect to influence somebody else? And usually the people we're dealing with are having a pretty bad day. As someone said, if you're talking to an FBI negotiator, you're probably having the worst day of your life. So we have to be at our best when, when people are at their worst. And what we know is a, a, a significant majority of the incidents are emotionally driven. And in those cases, our primary goal is to lower the emotional content um, and to help nudge these people to a point where they think and behave in a more rational manner and thereby make better decisions for them and, and for us. And how important is it to also partner up with the right people? Because you have, as a, as a negotiator, sometimes you can be an aggressive negotiator, or you can be a smooth negotiator. So how important is it to also have the right partner to deal with the situation too? Well, I, if I understand your question, I think you're referring to the negotiation team. We, we, never, we never advocated an aggressive approach um, that, that tends to just uh, fuel more resistance. But, and it's probably the biggest factor that Hollywood gets wrong. They always want to show a singular negotiator operating individually on their own. In reality, particularly in a more complex situation, there's a team of people working together and we're we're you know tapping into their collective experience wisdom and assessment we come up with a consensus as a team how do we uh, collectively interpret the behavior of the person we're dealing with what seem to be the important issues did somebody hear something that i missed or whatever it might be and then based on that we'll collectively say and this is the way we think we need to move forward to connect with this person so it's it's very much a team process. We want to use the collective experience and wisdom of three, four, five uh, experienced FBI agents rather, you know, working against uh, one emotionally, uh, you know, angry, agitated perpetrator or criminal. And um, also on the, um, on the book and at, like on the conference that we've been before too, you, you've mentioned, for example, whenever you were in a situation, you say, well, let me run it by my boss. Let me see what they think, or let me talk to them, see what they think. Is this the strategy that you use to kind of play the middle, the middle person? So you're the nice guy, try to be on their side. Like, is it a technique that you use? And should we use this in the business world too? Like, well, I think a lot of people use it without knowing it, but, but yeah, I mean, what we don't want to be, and this is a hostage situation. And let me preface this by saying only about 10% of what police do are actual hostage negotiations, uh, quid pro quo uh, engagements, you know, a word, a phrase used a lot these days in the political realm, but essentially someone is holding a hostage to try to force us to do something, give them money, release a prisoner, quit building a highway through their backyard, whatever it might be. And they need something that they can't accomplish on their own. So they grab a hostage and they threaten to harm them unless we do what they want. They feel empowered and in control. In reality, we slow the process down and by time and they get to the point where they don't feel so empowered. 90% of what police do are just emotional situations where there is no clear cut goal and the person we're dealing with really has no clear sense of what it is they're trying to accomplish. So that's an important distinction. But when we're in the bargaining uh, engagement and someone wants something from me, 
um, I prefer not to say no to them. I want to say, well, you know, that's a, that's a tough thing you're asking me to do. You want a getaway car. Okay, I understand. Let me tell the boss. I'm not saying yes or no. I'm just saying, let me see what my boss says. I'm not the ultimate decision maker here. And then you buy a little time to craft a better answer. And if there is fault found by the perpetrator, it's directed towards your boss rather than you. There's a, a kind of a selfish rule in negotiations that makes a lot of sense. If something good happens, I did it for you. I, the negotiator. If something bad happens, somebody else did it. And we can smile and laugh about that because there's a lot of people that do that in the business world without consciously thinking about it. You know, they take credit for something good and they blame somebody else for something bad. Again, we see this quite a bit in our national political discourse these days. But, you know, that, that's the basic uh, technique. You know, I worked a hijacking in Algeria many years ago, and a very high official from the country walked out to the plane, and the bad guy said, we want to be refueled. And this man shouldn't have been involved in the negotiations because he was of such a high level, he could say yes or no. What we really would have wanted was to have somebody at a much lower level say, okay, I hear, I hear what you're saying. Let me, let me go uh, tell the boss what you're asking for. And, you know, we'll, we'll see what they have to say. So it gives us time to craft a, a, a better answer and, uh, and slow the process down. And also it subtly conveys a message that, you know, we just don't snap. We just don't jump when you snap your finger. So there you go. Awesome. And then you, you also say too little action can make the subject secure and confident, but too much action can fire back at you. Where, where do you find that right balance? I'm not sure what you mean by too little action. I mean, um, where, when, where you, you when you're talking to the hostage, uh, when you're talking to the hostage taker or when you're talking to the other party, like too, too little action from your side, it might just make the other person feel like it's, they're confident and they're in charge, but too much action from your side, it can backfire you. Well, I think it's a little backward from what you explained. As I mentioned earlier, when, when someone is in one of these situations and they feel empowered, they, um, they feel as though they can dictate what you're going to do. Here's what you're going to do and you're going to do it now. And if you don't, I'm going to kill one of these hostages. So by not overreacting, not, uh, uh, coming through for them too quickly. Um, and that's why I named my book Stalling for Time. When, when we actually slow the process down and buy time, they subtly, subtly become to realize that they don't have as much power and control as they thought. Let me give you a, a famous example. There was a hijacking up in New York City, you know, back in the 70s. And this, you know, in among, amongst the loftier demands about fuel and money and all this sort of stuff. He, he also wanted a cup of coffee and, uh, and he wanted it hot very specifically with cream and two sugars. And, you know, an hour later he gets a cold cup of coffee, no cream and no sugar. And he surrendered, you know, an hour later uh, or sometime later. And, and they asked him, why did you surrender? And he said, well, I, I figured if I couldn't get the decent cup of coffee, I wasn't going to get this other stuff. And, you know, uh, probably an exaggeration of the truth, but but it kind of illustrates the story, you know, that, um, you know, people don't want to be told if a negotiator shows up and says, hey, listen, you're, you're, an, you're a nut, you're, you're never going to get what you want, you're, what you're asking for is impossible, so just surrender now. Th that's obviously not going to work. You're just going to get somebody perhaps to do something desperate and possibly self-destructive after harming others. 
So what we do is convey that same message, but through slowing the process down, buying time, lowering emotions. And at the end of the day, um, they're left with two choices, really. It's either cooperate with the police or run the risk of being seriously injured or killed. And fortunately for us in, again, this 10% category of hostages, uh, most people want to live more than they want to die. They're there to get their demands met, not to die. So that's why it is such a tremendously successful uh, situation. In fact, many people say, oh, many cops I taught say, well, we don't have any of those hostage situations. We just got these easy suicides and barricades. And I said, those are the hard ones. You know, somebody that when I find out it's a hostage situation, I feel good because I know the person's there for a demand not to die. Uh, I'm not saying people don't die in hostage situations, but it's it's not the purpose behind their activity. Whereas somebody that's suicidal or thinking of killing their girlfriend because she's having an affair or threatening to leave him or their boss because they've been fired, those are the dangerous ones because there's a history of, of uh, uh, emotional animosity between them that can drive their decision-making and their behavior in ways that we certainly don't want it to go. What is one of the silliest situations that you may have come across, like like a demand that a, a hostage taker might have requested? A, a silly one? Yeah. Well, I mentioned this on the, the, the Reddit thing the other day. There was, um, I, I wasn't personally involved in this was before my time, but th there was a guy that, um, held hostages in a bank in California and uh, demanded bird seed for all the birds in the state because there was a drought and the birds didn't have enough food. You know, there was a, a, another incident, you know, in the seventies in Cleveland, Ohio, where a fellow took over a police station and um, he was, he was a black guy and he wanted all the white people on the face of the earth to, to leave the earth right away. You know, so those are pretty rare that you have people who are sort of lost touch with reality. That's, that's not at all common, but occasionally you get, those are two, two of the most um, perhaps bizarre or silly, as you say, th that I recall. Now, um, I want to, I want to talk about silence, using silence, because I think silence is very important when it comes to negotiating. And I can talk about the business world because I'm not a hostage negotiator. <laughs> I'm not that awesome. But I want to talk about the business world because we use silence to, um, and it's very important to use silence during the business and during the deal. It, but I want to kind of see in the in the hostage negotiating world, like how important is is the silent, and is there a cap? Or is it is it is the silence dangerous in the hostage world, or is it beneficial like the business world? I mean, it, it's generally beneficial. It's a strategic tool that you have to use at the right time. I mean, your goal in a negotiation, a business engagement is to find out information. And when people communicate, there's a, a, a pattern that we fall into, just like you and I are, you know, you will sense that, okay, now it's my turn to talk and okay, I'm done. Now it's Gary's turn to talk. We are generally, when we are in a conversation, uncomfortable with silence. So the other person tends to fill that silence. So if I'm a negotiator trying to find out more about you, then one of the skills I might employ, um, and it, you know, it's, you have to be used it judiciously, you don't overplay it, but it might be to, to be quiet and let you tell me more about what I'm trying to find out. Um, 
you know, and it's preferable to saying, no, that's impossible or get into an argument. You can just sit back and, you know, and allow the person to, to talk more. And you'd be surprised how often people will fill that, that void and uh, engage further and maybe say more than probably is in their own best interest. So let me ask you this. Um, I'm Albanian originally, and unfortunately, um, I grew up during the war back home in the 1996 war, 1997. So that was not fun. But also, unfortunately, end up being a lot of hostage situations, which I always had this fear. Like, it's so silly, but I always feel like I'm going to be kidnapped or something just because I grew up with that fear growing up. Um, if I was to be in that situation, God prohibits that happen. Or if somebody's listening to this and that happens, how can you, as a person, you don't have a hostage negotiator, you don't have Gary, how can you negotiate your way out of it? Well, I don't know that I can tell you how to negotiate out of it, but I can maybe share some thoughts about how to survive it. And, and you do that by, you know, being uh, yourself. I mean, a lot of, a lot of people gauge what, or they assume what they would do is like what the military says, name, rank, and serial number. And, you know, I would suggest you humanize yourself and um, don't talk about you know, how much money your family has or how much you're worth or how much they're willing to pay for you. But, um, you know, kidnappers are likely to uh, have some human aspects, even though they're criminals and not the nicest of people. Do you have an opportunity to engage with them? You know, do you have a family? You know, um, can you tell me about them? Uh, you know, I'm not trying to get any information. Just curious, do you have a family or whatever? I think that's fine because if it came down to them making a decision about what to do with you, particularly if things aren't going the way they want and they're considering perhaps killing you, it makes it far more difficult for them to do so if now they've put a, a human element to your to you, to your face. Um, there, there's a famous story in one of the, Dutch Moluccan train incidents back in the, I think this was also in the 70s, that um, terrorists had hijacked the plane, uh, a train and, and they were going to kill a hostage and they selected a man. And one of the terrorists said, okay, it's you. We're going to use you as an example. And, and the man said, well, before you do, can I ask this stranger next to me to pass a message to my wife? And the terrorist said, quickly, quickly. So the man basically said these wonderful things that we all wish we would say you know, if we had a few minutes at the end of our lives and, you know, about how he loved his family and he was always proud of them and he wanted them to, you know, go ahead and all these good things. And when he was done, the terrorist said, not you, somebody else. And they went and sadly shot somebody else. But the thing was that this man, this complete stranger moments earlier had now shared information that made him personable, made him human, made him made the terrorist, no matter how bad this terrorist was, there was something that he touched. Now, I'm not saying this is a guarantee for your survival, but I think anytime you can do things like, I've, I've known a hostages, kidnapped victims in South America who have taught their captors how to speak English. Um, you know, if they had some skill, they taught, taught them how to repair a, a, an old truck that they had, you know, made themselves useful, made themselves uh, help themselves get in a situation where they could exhibit normal human engagement. And it made them, it enhanced their ability to survive. So let me ask you this, because the more knowledge that we share, the more psychology that we share behind negotiation and everything, what, uh, have you seen like the cases of actually hostage takers use that against 
because all this knowledge is getting more out there. Like when it first started, when the first unit started with the FBI, the knowledge was not as much out there. But with today's technology, people, I feel like sometimes people can use what you try to practice and teach others against you. So it'd make it harder to negotiate. I think if your negotiation is based on trickery and manipulation, they, they could probably um, learn a thing or two. But in reality, it, it shouldn't be. Uh, that should be sort of a rare skill. I mean, what we're trying to do is create a relationship of trust and influence the person. So let's take, for example, you know, you're the negotiator and, and you're talking to me and I say to you, oh, Romina, I know what you're trying to do. You're, you're just trying to understand what I'm concerned about. You're trying to help me get out of this situation. You go, yep, guilty as charged. You got me. Yeah, of course, that's exactly what I'm trying. I'm here to help you. I'm here to help us resolve this situation. Uh, and, and here's how I'm going about doing it. I'm doing it by wanting to understand what you have to say, by appreciating how you feel about what happened to you, and by trying to let you know that I'm, I'm a good person that's going to make sure you don't get hurt in this thing. So to answer your question in sort of a long, convoluted way there is it really doesn't hurt us for them to know exactly what we're trying to do as long as we're trying to do good stuff, and we are. Uh, yeah, I mean, I feel like sometimes um, Hollywood and movies, they, may, they, they, they teach a whole different perception of mm -hmm. trying to see. So looking at um, your, your method and looking at what we see from some movies, it just feels like two different worlds. That's why I wanted to ask that question, too. Well, the, the TV world has is, is got to deal with the compression of time. And, and you know, they, they try to make it uh, more controversial. They try to emphasize negotiators using trickery. Uh, and of course, ever since Silence of the Lambs, the, I guess the public thinks that FBI negotiators and profilers get into somebody's head and figure out how to make them do whatever we want. And all that is, is pretty nonsensical. It just doesn't work that way. But I mean, again, that, that sells well on TV, but it's not an accurate image of what we do. I see. And then um, also in the book, you did mention that once you learn street psychology, it actually helps you out a lot to improve your, your negotiation skills and just to improve the way to understand how people think. What, what is that exactly? Why is that important, do you think? Well, I think I might have mentioned this earlier, but I'll, I'll repeat it if I did. But, but, you know, people want to be listened to. They want to be understood. Uh, when a police officer responds to a citizen on the street, um, police have come a long way instead of just being uh, authoritative and demanding. There's still some police officers that do that, but good police officers, effective, successful police officers, engage with the public in a way that projects, uh, you know, care and concern and professionalism. You know, well, tell me what happened. I want to know. And um, you can avoid situations escalating unnecessarily. I mean, uh, I won't name it, but there was a police department I worked with many, many years ago that, uh, you know, a, a, a smaller police department, they decided to train everybody on the force hostage negotiations. And as a consequence, their SWAT team callouts got reduced 90% because police officers, when confronting tough situations, were able to use their verbal skills to keep it from getting out of control, to keeping it calm, and uh, making sure things didn't explode. So it, it's sort of like a, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, you know, the old saying. And, and in this case, I think that's what I mean by street psychology. You know, it's understanding 
what populace you're serving, what are their perceptions about the police, and how can you present them with something that maybe is not what they expect, instead of being uh, aloof and officious and rigid and demanding, you're open and empathic and you seem like a decent person, you know, and we all want to work with people like that. What is, um, what is your own like inner process whenever you get, you know, their ring or whenever you get that call, what is like you, do you have like a, a process to keep your cool and be focused? Cause let's just be honest that's not just a an easy job to do also like you like what do you do to keep your your calm and your collectiveness together or are you just that person that is always relaxed as much as you can be well no, i have my, i have my moments of anger and frustration like anybody else but um you know it goes back to the question of nature or nurture so i i think there's probably some innate uh personality uh, attributes that I inherited, uh, particularly from my father, that allows me to stay calm in a tough situation. But it's also a learned skill. I know when I'm in a, in a real tense situation, I'm probably more focused on presenting myself the way I need to be than mine might be in a, a family argument or a dispute with, uh, you know, some randoms. But self-control is the big thing. And there's also an important thing for a negotiator and, and or a police officer, I think it's, you've heard of the serenity prayer and that's kind of knowing what you can do and what you can't do and to understand the difference. If you go into every situation saying, oh my God, every word I say is going to be life or death, you put too much pressure on yourself. The person that makes the ultimate decision is the gunman or the person threatening someone or themselves. It's all their decision. All we can do is try to influence it positively. So if you go in there basically with a mindset that I don't control this, but I'm going to try to influence it. And then what they do is their decision. This particularly comes to home to play for police officers who handle suicides, because when a negotiator has someone commit a suicide, they tend to blame themselves more than if it's a, a nasty old criminal that's shot a hostage. You know, when that happens, they say, oh, that's a bad criminal. He was a terrible person. But, but not every suicide is a bad person. In fact, most of them are just regular people who are having a real bad series of events in their lives. And when one of those kills themselves after you've been talking to them, there's a tendency to say, what did I do wrong? What should I have said? I didn't do my job very well. So I always try to tell negotiators, you know, go into this with a, with a, with a clear sense of, of what your ability is to change the outcome. Your motto should be, I will give it 100%. I will try my darnest, but at the end of the day, the outcome's not up to me. If you understand that, it relaxes you to a point where you're not so hung up by every word you say, because as a negotiator, you will make mistakes. In hindsight, you'll say, ooh, I probably shouldn't have phrased that. That way I could have handled that better. But no one's going to kill themselves or somebody else because of one or two things you said. What's going to win the day for you is the overall projection of your care and concern and your genuineness and your likability. Those are the factors that come into play, regardless of a couple minor mistakes, you know. Do you, um, do you think if anybody can be a hostage negotiator or does it take a certain person, certain skills and certain nature to... It's probably like on? a bell curve, you know, there, there's probably... You know, I don't know. I can put a number on it, but there, there's there's a 
probably a, a quarter of the people, I guess it did put a number on it, maybe 25% of people are, are kind of naturally empathic and good at this. They're good listeners and, and um, they're very likable people and they're probably going to be successful even without training. On the other end of the spectrum, there's probably some people that it's just not in the cards that they're going, I mean, they, they just irritate people. They don't know how to talk to folks. They're self-centered, they're arrogant, they're whatever it might be. And they're probably, even with all the training in the world, not going to be particularly proficient. Most of us in the middle, that 50% left over, at various degrees, are capable of becoming better at what we do with training and practice and knowledge. And and so that's what we really focus on in our training. It's, it's uh, you know, it's helping people understand with some modifications, with some focus on how to go about doing this, they can be better communicators. And that's what leads to successful negotiations. How is uh, the negotiation in the household family? Are you the, the top negotiator in the household too? Because no, I know not, it's a different I, world sometimes. I, I hate to quote quote him these days, but as as Bill Cosby said, I, I'm not the boss, and I don't want her job. Uh, you know, it's th there is an interesting thing. Sometimes it's easier, I think, to negotiate with a complete stranger because you don't have that history. Uh, if it's a family member or someone else that you have a long history with at work or whatever, there's a lot of baggage that comes with that. You know, sometimes it's good and it works to your benefit and sometimes it's bad and it works to your detriment. So you have to focus real hard. And, you know, I, I know in years past when I was doing this quite a bit, I'd come home and my wife might be angry and, and, and say something and I would try these skills and she would go, ah, 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 don't try that at home, you know? So, um, like like all good spouses, they have a way to keep you in your place. And I, I think that's that's really impressive, though, because just knowing the kind of job that you do, and you mentioned sometimes, like, you had to go out, you know, be out of town for, for days or for weeks sometimes. And I think it's very important, too, to have that strong negotiator in the house while you're away, too. So. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, um, you know, we had three young kids when I was doing most of this and this work and I was traveling a lot and involved in some very high level situations. And, you know, I think my wife was the stabilizing uh, force and was able to keep the family grounded and, you know, played a typical for a lot of spouses in, in historic when, when the man is the primary guy, it, it, you know, they, it, they're unsung heroes of, there's no way I could have done my job without, um, without her support. So it really was a, a, a team effort, although, you know, the focus is on me, but it couldn't have happened without her. Absolutely. Now, Gary, let me ask you this. Um, do we have another book coming our way from you? What's a, what's a project or something that yeah, you're looking towards? I've, I've started two of them and they kind of languish. And uh, w one was more in, instructional and, and the other, and that's further along. And the other one is, is, is sort of a, a fiction based uh, a fictional story based on a real kidnapping I worked uh, in Africa, but I don't know. It's a lot of work to write a book and, and there's a very different skill in, in writing about your own life and sharing your experiences than a fictional work where you dream up this intricate plot and write about character development and set the scene and all these sorts of things. And I, I don't know if that's my, 
my forte, but um, you know, I, I keep pretty busy, so I really have not much time to devote to it, but we'll see. <laughs> and then my very last question, so I'll, I'll, I'll let you choose. Typically I ask, what's your definition of success? But you can choose that, or you can choose what's your definition of a great successful negotiation? Well, I mean, maybe I'll go with the, the latter. I mean, I think a great successful negotiation is when you, in, in the context of law enforcement, I'm not talking about business now, but in, in the context of hostage negotiations, crisis negotiations, is when everybody comes out that can come out alive. Now, I'm not saying every situation is a failure if somebody's lost their lives, but if as a team, it is within the realm of possibility to save this person's life and to get them out and we don't do it, then I think it's a failure. Um, that's how I felt about Waco. Um, that, you know, we can argue whether everyone would have come out eventually, but I'm absolutely 100% convinced that we could have uh, gotten a lot more people out. So for me, it was a failure. Um, I did, you know, even though it had started tragically and there'd been loss of life and, um, you know, and, and the, the problems and internal conflict we had are certainly uh, shown carefully in that, in that series. Al although I think they're a little too kind to the Branch Davidians and David Koresh, Koresh but nonetheless. Um, they're too kind, you said? Yeah, I think they paint them too sympathetically. In real life, he was a far more sinister and manipulative, a, a darker figure in every way. And, and I know the producer directors who were wonderful people were trying to show the elements of his personality that attracted followers. And, and they did that successfully. But I also, I think, made him out to be a far more reasonable and likable person than, than certainly we found to be the case. So I was very candid about the mistakes the FBI made, but I, I don't think on the other side there was as much candor or reality about the failings and shortcomings and manipulation of David Koresh. But, but, um, but be that as it may, you know, it was a very challenging and, and uh, complex situation but we could have got more people out. So, so when I say success or failure, I don't know what other gauge you would use. Um, you know, uh, again, I've been in a lot of situations where people have died. And if despite that we did everything we could, then, then we can hold our heads up and, and walk away uh, feeling terrible about what happened, but not feeling like we screwed up. On the other hand, if there's people that we could have got out and we didn't, then, you know, and maybe we need to work harder at, at doing what we need to do. Well, Gary, I definitely want to thank you so, so much for taking your time today and being a part of the RM Podcast FL show. I'm pleased to have you here. Super excited. And I'll attach the information to you guys. So if you definitely want to connect with Gary, it will be the information on the details. Any last thing you'd like to sell to our listeners, Gary? No, just uh, during this uh, challenging time we're having with the with COVID and so many of us are, are spending extended amounts of time indoors with our families. Um, you know, that, that can weigh heavily on relationships and can create problems and just, and I've failed at it a number of times myself, but, but try to be a good listener and be attentive. You know, um, one of the most moving songs I tear up today, every time I hear it for, God knows how long I've heard the song Cats in the Cradle by Harry Chapin. You know, it's, it's a real touching song about a father who, whose son 
keeps wanting to do something with him. And the father's always too busy, but he says, we'll do it later on. And all of a sudden the son's grown and the father says, Hey, I, uh, you know, I'm an old man now. How about come visiting me? And the son says, I'm sorry, I'm too busy, you know, and words to that effect. And it's, it's pretty touching because, you know, we tend to put the people who are most important in our lives, we take them for granted. It's human nature to do so. So you'll spend time on the phone with a salesman, uh, you know, uh, 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 doing an interview and, and then you'll be, inattentive to maybe where you really need to spend your time and energy, the people that are going to be with you the rest of your life. So I would, uh, I would uh, suggest to your listeners, put a little thought into that. And, you know, I, I, <laughs> I, uh, I taught a school once a couple of years ago to negotiators and I asked them, I gave them a homework assignment. I said, when, cause they were all out of town. And I said, when you go back to your hotel room tonight, call your, your wife back in wherever you're from and ask her how her day was. And when she tells you about her day, ask her questions about it. Let her know how you think she feels about what happened. And I had this guy come into class the next day. He said, you changed my life. You changed my life. He said, my wife was just shocked. She said, she's never heard from me like that. He said, it's, uh, it's pretty amazing and refreshing. And he said, thank you. You know, <laughs> I said, well, you know, it just gives you an example that. That's amazing. We, I can we, see, we, I can see a wife too. Yeah. I can see a wife too being like, okay, what did you do? Why are you being nice? Cause <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is, this is not your usual uh, way of engaging. So what's going on, you know? And, um, but you know, it's, it's a powerful tool. I'm interested in you. I still love you. I want to know how you feel, what's going on. And, and I, I, you know, I've been teaching this stuff for 40 years. I, I still fail at it all the time. So, you know, I think I, I certainly consider myself a work in progress and I, and I'm sure there's a lot of us out there that are as well. No, but I feel like that's absolutely very important because especially with the today's technology, like, yes, it's going to come a phase that we're just all going to go to work, you know, like as, as much as we're going to try to go back to our normal life or close to it, it's going to be like phone on our hands, not paying attention, not doing this, you know, like, and I think that's very important because you need to build that relationship and you need to have that strong foundation, especially in the household. And how many times have you been out to dinner when we were all going to dinner still, and you see a whole family of four or five sitting around, everybody's on their, their phone at a restaurant, you know, and yeah. You know, uh, these these phones, I, I'm guilty of it, too, where they're, they're absolutely uh, stimulating and intoxicating. And the whole world's at your fingertips like nothing I had when I was growing up. And it's hard to divert attention away from that. And uh, I think it's an issue that we're going to have to really be cognizant about as as, you know, as as we travel on through life here. It is very true. And yeah, I mean, I've seen multiple times like people on dates or families or just phone, you know, phone on their hands. And I'm like, just put it down. You're just right in front of there. Like, why are you even here? Just text each other. Like, what's the point? You should have that human interaction. Oh my goodness. Gary, thank you so, so much for being a part of the RM Podcast FL show. And I'll attach all the information. Like I said before, you guys definitely go ahead and get Gary's book, Styling for Time. Of my life as a FBI hostage negotiator, and I'll attach all the information. And yeah, and, you, and um, if people want more, they can look at my website, you know, uh, GaryNestor.com. It's got a lot of articles I've written and interviews and 
so forth and so on that might uh, be of interest to someone. Perfect. Awesome. Thank you so much. And you guys, if you want to listen, awesome episodes, maybe not as cool as this one, because this one we had Gary, that you are like the highlight of our own podcast FL, I would say so far, which we've been super excited for this one. But make sure to tune in every Tuesday to our show, you guys.